I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 8, and then I'll lead us in prayer for our time together this morning. So it says this. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazel, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept, and Hezael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do the great thing, do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me, that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zeah with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did 
are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hezael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. We're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading, so 2 Kings chapters 9 to 10. And we are deep into the book of 2 Kings now, and it's quite easy to just be swamped by the sheer amount of stuff that's going on. So one question to be thinking about as you read is, is there any theme that's repeated? Okay, so is there anything you think, oh, that... That, that, there's a little bit of a theme that's sort of coming up that um, hangs it all together. So do be looking out for... I think repetition is one of the, the ways that Bible writers help us to see what's of first importance. So, and we're, we're wired to sort of spot repetition. You think, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. So just see if you can see um, that which is repeated. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. <coughs> and when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and get him to rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, This is not true. Tell us now. And he said, 
Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Then Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing over the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and, say, and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, the messenger reached him then, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus the king has said, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each to his chariot and went to meet Jehu and meet him and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bigkar, his assistant, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side, Ahab faced his father. And I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Eblim, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. 
Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more than her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, so Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city of the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with your chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you're on my side, and if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. <coughs> When the messenger came and told him they had brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah who came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. And he said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Eked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, come to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, it is, Jehu said. If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests, that none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to 
destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it, and Jehu sent throughout all Israel. And all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him, who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, the man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Beth, Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the way, walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastwards, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aor, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Well, do keep that passage open. We're going to have a look at that together. There is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. So do use that as you see fit. And then at the end, there will be an opportunity for any questions or comments. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit who inspired these words of two kings to be written down, uh, not least for uh, the benefit of your people. And we pray, therefore, that the same spirit who inspired these words to be written would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we might understand them uh, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. What do we lose if we lose the Old Testament? It's the idea that all that is necessary is taught by the New Testament. 
that we lose nothing significant if we concentrate exclusively on the New Testament in preaching and teaching. In many churches today, there's something like this rule applying. Now, you may disagree with this, but how seriously would you rate your disagreement? Well, if we lose the Old Testament, one thing that we lose is the idea of promise. Well, does it matter if we lost the promises? If we just had the straightforward affirmation of the New Testament that Jesus is God's son who conquers evil, does it matter that we've lost the fact that it was promised? Does it matter that we affirm that God is faithful to his promises? Now, for a promise to have value, you need to know that there is a fulfilment. But for the fulfilment to have value, you need to know that there is a promise. Promise and fulfilment work together. And God's fulfilment of his promises relates to God's truthfulness. For when God fulfills the promises he's made, he's demonstrating his faithfulness, the the truthfulness of his word. Now, if we were to lose sight of God's truthfulness, well, I mean, one obvious question would be, why would you read the Bible? But the question of God's truthfulness ought to take us back to Genesis chapter 3. Because it was there that we see that the serpent's temptation starts with the indication to Eve that the day that she eats of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, she will not surely die. Now, who is it that said, you will surely die? God. So central to humanity's original sin is the idea that we have declared that God is not truthful. Now, as soon as we start to see that God's truthfulness is actually that central to the fall of humanity, and then what happened to the cosmos as a result, we ought to be enormously wary about anything that might downplay it. I mean, we don't want to go anywhere near a direction that might be inclined to downplay God's truthfulness. And if we downplay God's faithfulness to God's promises, well, then God's truthfulness is downplayed. It's less obviously in our faces. Now, there's a lot going on in today's reading. So if you were feeling a bit overwhelmed, then it's understandable. When I first read it, I was thinking, what is going on here? Now, one thing that can help a little if you don't already do this is to get yourself a copy of the term card and read ahead. So if you come each Sunday morning having read the passage beforehand, you give yourself a bit of a head start. 
Now, when we get to a text like we have this morning, one thing to do is first take a moment just to orientate ourselves. And three things, two facts and one concept. First, since 1 Kings 11, the kingdom of God's been divided. Okay, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Second, in 1 Kings 13, we learn that Israel is doomed to destruction because of the sins of the first king, Jeroboam. Third is this idea concerning why is there this delay in God's hammer of judgment falling on Israel? Because anticipated from 1 Kings 13, it doesn't actually happen until you get to 2 Kings 17. And what we've been seeing in recent weeks is the thing that delays the judgment is the prophetic activity. Judgment is delayed for God's prophets to speak. Israel's decline becomes the stage in which God reveals himself. Now, it's this last point that orientates us as we pay attention to God's prophet in this account. In this case, it's Elisha. What is God telling us about himself through this prophet? Well, one thing I mentioned before I read was to be looking out for any repetition of ideas. And it's here that we spot a repetition of ideas concerning fulfilment. That these events concerning the downfall of the house of Ahab are happening according to what God has said. Now, this motif of fulfilment occurs in a number of places. So if you're making notes, 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, verse 36, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 17. But I want to propose that 2 Kings 10, verse 10 is a key text for this section. So 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 10, what are we to know? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant, Elijah. Let me make a few observations. What the reader is to know is that what has happened has happened as fulfilment of what the Lord said through Elijah. Okay? Now, the things that have happened are the things concerning the house of Ahab. It's the house of Ahab that is currently ruling Israel. Israel's king at the time was Joram, who was the son of Ahab. Jezebel was Ahab's wife. And actually, a large portion of our reading was taken up with the things concerning Joram, Jezebel, Ahab's wider family. So we're not majoring on a minor here. And then notice the stress on the thoroughness of the fulfilment. So chapter 10, verse 10. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. Now, the idea to fall to the earth is the idea of being unfulfilled or ineffective. And here it's stressed that nothing that God has promised concerning the house of Ahab has fallen to the earth. It's been fully fulfilled. 
So what we have in this section then is not simply a case of this happened and then this happened and then this happened, simply a record of events. Nor do we have here uh, predictions or promises to look out for in the future. This text is firmly about fulfilment, about what the Lord had said would happen actually happening. But this is where we encounter a puzzle. Because who said that these things would happen to the house of Ahab? I mean, it was the Lord, but speaking through which prophet? Well, look back at 2 Kings 10, verse 10. Know then, there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant, Elisha. Oh no, sorry, Elijah. It was the Lord speaking through Elijah. But if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, it was Elisha who instigated the anointing of Jehu as the new king of Israel. And it was Elisha was the one who told him what the Lord had said concerning his task to wipe out the house of Ahab. I mean, maybe it's a typo. Elijah, Elisha. But then again, if you look at 9.36 and 10.17, they also speak of fulfilment of what Elijah said. But it's kind of handy that we did one king's a while ago, because this all makes sense if you read 1 Kings, and if you go back to the book of 1 Kings, because it was in 1 Kings that Elijah made the prophecy concerning the future of the house of Ahab. Do you remember where it is? It's uh, 1 Kings 20. It's worth just reading a few verses to re-familiarise yourself with it. So if you want to turn to 1 Kings 20... I'll just pick it up from verse 20 and read to verse 24. So this is the promise. <clears throat> Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belong to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens." shall eat. Okay, so it's, it's through Elijah that the prophecy was first given. And then in 2 Kings 9, the terms of Elisha's prophe prophecy given to Jehu are basically a restatement of those of Elijah's prophecy to Ahab. Ahab's house is to be destroyed, especially Jezebel. And it happened just as the Lord had said. 
Now, I wonder, as I read through it, whether you noticed the dramatic irony in the account. For where did Jehu meet with Joram? Have a look at 2 Kings 9, 21. So on that fateful day, 2 Kings 9, 21, Joram said, make ready, and they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and meet him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, does the land of Naboth, the Jezreelite, ring any bells? Or where had the prophecy that Elijah first gave against Ahab take place? and actually precipitated such prophecy. Well, 1 Kings 21 verse 1, the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So it's interesting that Joram seems happy to meet Jehu there in 2 Kings 9. He's hoping for peace. Joram, son of Ahab, does not seem to be aware of the significance of where this meeting's taking place. But we, the readers, know I had to anticipate that the very place where the prophecy against the house of Ahab was made will be the very place where it will be fulfilled. Now, do notice the strong uh, verbal parallels of fulfillment of Elijah's words, particularly concerning Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Elijah had said back in 1 Kings 21 verse 23, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Then look how it plays out in 2 Kings chapter 9. In verse 30, Jehu now approaches Jezreel in search of Jezebel. He discovers her sitting at a window dressed as a prostitute. Thrown down onto the plot of ground beneath by some eunuchs, she's trampled underfoot by Jehu's chariot horses. Now, Jehu, he orders her burial, but while he's been eating and drinking, the dogs have also been at their dinner. Most of Jezebel is gone. But the point is not so much the grisly horror of it, but the fulfilment of prophecy. 2 Kings 9, verse 36. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Prophecy has again been fulfilled. It is just as Elijah said. It makes quite an impression. God's truthfulness is in the reader's face. One final thing is the aspect, is this aspect of the judgment, one final aspect of the judgment is the thoroughness of which it's enacted. So it's not just Ahab's son, Joram, and Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who's killed but the entire family, all the relatives, all wiped out. 
Now, we're to understand this judgment as an eradication of the whole family line. If the house or dynasty of Ahab, no more. Jehu, who succeeds as king of Israel, is not of the house of Ahab. Now, we've seen dynastic change already in Israel a number of times. The first house of Israel was Jeroboam. The second house was Basha. The third house, Zimri. Fourth house, Omri, all wiped out. And over the 20 northern kings, the dynasties in Israel will change 10 times. And it's nasty stuff. Now, in contrast to Israel, Judah has no dynastic change. There are a string of different kings, for sure. And in our section today, the current king of Judah, Ahaziah, I mean, he, he does get caught up in the judgment of Ahab and is killed by Jehu in 2 Kings 10. But there's never a dynastic change in Judah. All the kings of Judah are of the Davidic line. And the significance of this can be seen in our section back in 2 Kings 8, 19. 2 Kings 8, 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. David here is not just simply reference to a great king, but his significance is that to him were given the promises. Never far from view is a divine promise to David. The background to all this we kind of get, it's all getting very familiar, is 2 Samuel 7. That's where God promises David a kingdom. And if there's one thing about the promise, is that the kingdom will be unending. So he says uh, in 2, Kings, uh, 2 Samuel 7, to, of David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And it goes on to say that even if one of the royal line does wrong, that God will never reject the line altogether, like he did with Saul. That God will keep the kingdom going. So as we continue in this book of two kings, rather than get lost, what we're continuing to get is this contrast between the south and the north. The name of David in the south the instability in the north all focuses our attention on David and the promise made to him. The name David shines in the text as a lamp in the darkness. So we're not to be surprised that even when the kings of Judah sin, the Lord will not destroy Judah. He won't. Why? For David, his servant's sake. God has promised David to give him always a lamp for his sons. Well, we began by considering what we lose if we lose the Old Testament. We considered how losing the promise fulfillment dynamic, how losing the promise fulfillment dynamic would downplay God's truthfulness. And since from the fall, 
we are all prone to doubting God's truthfulness. I take it we want all the help that there is to keep reinforcing the truthfulness of God's word. And what we're seeing this morning is the contribution that the book of uh, Two Kings makes to this. That this delay in God's judgment on Israel provides the context for God to display his truthfulness through his prophetic witness. In contrast to idols, well, they can't keep their word. They can't speak, but if they could, they can't keep their word because they're not real. They can do nothing. Whereas God is the uncreated creator who does what he says. The proposal that 2 Kings 10.10 be a key verse uh, for our section today is a good one, I think. That we would know that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord has spoken. Let me pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are prone to doubting your truthfulness. And we thank you for the richness of your word uh, and this uh, promise fulfillment um, dynamic that helps keep put your truthfulness in our faces. Uh, please, Father, will we uh, grow in confidence uh, to not doubt, but to know that what you says, what you say happens. And we thank you that if you keep your words of judgment, even on the house of Ahab, how much more can we be confident that you uh, will keep your promises uh, to David. We thank you how we've seen how those promises have been kept and therefore how sure your word is as a lamp to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Anybody want to... Did I... Um... Did I give you a reference wrong? Did I mean 1 Kings 21? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the prophecy itself is 1 Kings 21, uh, verse 20, 24, not chapter 20. So apologies for that. I was thinking like, hang on. I was... <laughs> What's yeah, going on? <laughs> yes. I know sometimes my, the old word's different, but hang on, we've got whole sentences. <laughs> what Bible is this? Yes. I appreciate there's an awful lot going on, and I think today is slightly an exercise also in trying to keep the main thing the main thing as to what actually is this all about. Go on, Josh. Get into the old as well. Um, so obviously, we have the benefit of 
just going through it and we're in it. Mm. But a lot of people might just be in churches where that's just not prioritised. So. Yeah, good one. Okay, so just for the recording, how can we help people get into the Old Testament if they're not in it um, to see the benefits of it? Because you know, we are impoverished if we, if we ignore it, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think, and I wouldn't start with 2 Kings chapter 8 to 10, because um, that's just, that's going to throw up more questions than not. And I suspect that, um, well, one thing is, it goes back to, um, I don't know, you probably, I sometimes remember the questions you asked. You asked a question, I think it was probably your, one of your first Sundays, about, um, I was talking about um, biblical categories and or entering this one on the Bible, and you asked a very good question about how do we help people think in biblical categories than secular categories. And one of the things, actually I didn't say at the time, but I discussed it later with Tom, and that he observed, was the fact that biblical categories work, secular categories fall short, they don't work. So I think we can be really confident that the Old Testament is part of God's revelation, and so it's of a piece with the New Testament. So there's nothing for us to be worried about in terms of people are thinking, like, I, don't, I don't like the Old Testament, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it, or I don't like what it says, that actually... Um, uh, there's a unity to the Bible and therefore it's been all given to us that we would know God as fully as he's made himself known. So in that sense, um, people can be quite um, uh, on the front foot and sort of saying, but what about this, what about this, I don't like it. But I, I think we can relax and just think actually the Old Testament is... is um, uh, it works. Is that sort of thing. So in other words, we're not forcing something that's not already there. Now, I think probably, as I said, don't go to 2 Kings 8 to 10. One thing that I think is helpful is to kind of think in terms of concentric circles. And first, we'll give a bit of an overview, and then you can get down into the detail. So there's some great resources like um, uh, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts or Gospel and Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy. Um, you could do something like The God Who Makes Himself Known, which is a bit more interactive. But I think, when I've done The God Who Makes Himself Known with a number of students, you know, when you get to things like, you know, you've done Genesis 3, and you've got the promise of the serpent crusher, and then that's just left, you know, just cooking away. Then you get to study 6, and then you have Jesus confronting um, Satan and defeating him, and then you're thinking oh, can you make any links? And they're going, ah, the serpent crush has come. And people like, that is proper, like, exciting, especially if they've had that level of sort of discovery. So I think, and then the thinking in terms of God as the creator, then when Jesus calms the storm, well, how does he do that? He says, quiet, be still, and it's still. Here is one who speaks, and it happens. Where have we seen that before? Genesis 1. So I think those things... Um, um, I think people are quite stimulated by it. So I, I, in many ways, I had to kind of show them, the, show them the gold. But it may be a case of starting with some of those bigger, bigger concepts and then things like Genesis 12 is an old favourite. Show them that, show how that fits in with the storyline. Um, so I maybe start bigger picture and then, then kind of go, go down to the detail. Um, yeah. 
But it's a funny one because I think in the end, well, here's another thing. Because if you lose the Old Testament, you know, when he, Jesus talks about him being the Passover lamb, it doesn't mean anything. So the very thing that you think you've got in the New Testament, you haven't even got that because you don't have the, the context for it. It's a bit like t- um, 2 Kings 8 to 10. If you don't have 1 Kings 21, you can't understand 2 Kings 8 to 10. So it's kind of like one of these things where it's not even like if we just do the New Testament, we've actually got the New Testament because the New Testament, you know, relies on what's before. It's all right, cool. Anybody else? Nikki. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Okay, 8 verse 10, um, we just read it. It says, Elisha said to him, Go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. So why does he say, the question is, why does he say, you shall certainly recover, but that he will die? Um, I I looked up in the commentary, but the commentary is all a bit slim on this. Let me just see if there's anything I wrote down here, and I'll tell you what I thought. Um, so, one suggestion is that um, it is a genuine deception, and it's to lull Ben Haddad into a false sense of security so that Hazael can strike. Um, I don't know if it's a case of, um, uh, so let me give you what I, what I was thinking. Um, the, I wonder if it's a case, you know, before we found the prophets, they don't always tell us everything. Um, so we had that a few weeks ago with, um, who was it? Um, Elisha. Um, so it could be that he will recover from his sickness. So it's true to say he will recover from his sickness. But, because how does he die? I mean, he, he's murdered. He's, in verse 15, he's smothered by a wet cloth and he's killed. So it may be a case of as isn't that his sickness, he would recover from it. Um, so that's, that, that's true as far as it goes. But actually, um, he will be murdered by Hazael, and therefore he will die. Is that convincing? Okay. But I think if that's the case, it just goes back to the thing of we're not, prophets aren't there just to tell us what we want to hear in terms of, you know, you think, I've got these questions, you consult the prophet. The prophet only can tell you what God has said. So it's interesting you get with Hazael. The prophet knows that Hazael is going to inflict much harm on Israel and it causes him to weep. But he's not trying to manipulate things and try and stop that happening. He's saying this is, this is, this is all according to the plans and purposes of God. And he's just telling, the, the prophet just tells us those things rather than, 
um, controlling or manipulating things. Um, cool. Time for more. So that hasn't happened yet. I want to consult you. I, I, I tried to look this up, so I'm sorry. And if, um, so Syria, is that the same as Assyria? Is it different? Different. OK, in which case, um, we haven't had the, so this seems to be a prophecy that's only because we know that the Israel so part of my thinking is Israel is ultimately going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. Assyrians, which is 2 Kings 17, 18, that sort of thing. Okay. So this is a prediction that Hazael is going to cause damage on Israel. Now, to be fair, Israel's got lots of enemies. And as we saw, do you remember? The, oh, in fact, actually, at the end, did you um, fulfillment, Susie, in 2 Kings 10, 32... Do you see there, it says, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. So 10, 2 Kings 10.32. So just to go back, to so the prophecy is, uh, Elisha knows that Hazael is going to cause a lot of damage on Israel. Um, and that begins to happen from 10.32 onwards. Because basically, Israel is, is slowly falling apart and will finally fall to the Assyrians. But it's all designed to make it easier because you think, oh, Assyrians, is that just do they become the Assyrians? But um, you try and Google these things and you just go on a rabbit hole. So, yes, so you're happy with 1032 that basically that, that's beginning to happen. Not, he's not the king of Israel. He's the king of Syria. Oh, sorry. Right. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting all of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, um, where's that? So, yeah, 7-2. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael. So, basically, this is about Hazael bumping off Ben-Hadad so he can become king of Syria. And then this king of Syria is the means by which Israel is, is you know, it's, well, it's a we had a decline since 1 Kings 13, but it's, it's all part of a decline, which will end in total defeat. Everyone happy?
And don't worry, if it's your first time through Two Kings, there's an awful lot kind of going on in remembering the things. And that's why I said at the start, you know, to keep going back to your bearings of the kingdoms divided. We know, we know that the northern kingdom's going to be destroyed. And, and that's kind of where we're at. You happy, Susie? Great. Cool. All right, let's um, leave it there. We're going to sing again. And this song uh, speaks of how firm a foundation is God's word to us as people.